This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Across this state, nurses visit new and expecting mothers. They serve some of the poorest households in the state. And this program started 40 years ago now. In a few minutes, we'll meet the man who helped champion the idea. First, CPR's Andrea Dukakis follows a nurse on a visit in rural southern Colorado. Stephanie Carino steps through the door of a tiny stucco house. It's off a dirt driveway near the center of Alamosa in the San Luis Valley. Hi. Look at you, big boy. Carino's visiting Cecilia Sanchez, who's 23, and her four-month-old son, Jericho. Sanchez is a single mother. She looks forward to Carino's weekly visits and the chance to share Jericho's milestones. He's been getting to make more noises and stuff like that and do more, and it's fun to wake up in the morning and hear, like, little bubbles in the back end. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Carino, the nurse, and Sanchez, her client, have been meeting for a year, first when Sanchez was pregnant and every week or so since she had Jericho. Carino brings all her clients' books and toys to help kids develop. Today, it's a colorful rattle for Jericho. I'll test it with this. And just to see if he'll watch it, you know, he should be moving his, his head. Let's see. <gasps> and he follows it. That's what I was going to ask, too. Are, are they seeing a lot of stuff in color now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he can see in color now, yeah. Carino reminds Sanchez to make Jericho's four-month doctor's appointment and tells her what to prepare for. Like shots, <laughs> which shots are harder for parents than they are for the babies, so. Oh, bless you. Bless you again. <laughs> this visit is part of the Nurse Family Partnership a national nonprofit based in Denver. It's for parents with incomes of about $24,000 a year or less. Most of the clients are single mothers, and it's voluntary. Sanchez says before she had Jericho, she was a party girl, so her friends were surprised she volunteered. When I decided to do the program with Stephanie, um, my buddies were all like, you signed up for supervision? You signed up for somebody to watch you and come check on you? And I'm like, yes, I've never had a baby before. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Jericho isn't in daycare. Sanchez works at a restaurant and has been bringing him with her. When she's not at work, Sanchez says she calls Carino a lot. Especially like when his umbilical cord fell off and stuff like that, and I was like freaking out. So it's been awesome to have somebody to help me along the way. Sanchez says the worst was recently when she was separated from Jericho for a month and a half during a custody battle with the father. Carino still came to the house to visit. And it was so difficult, and it was so hard. And she'd, like, come, and she'd reassure me, and she'd let me know things were going to be all right. When Jericho came back, Sanchez wasn't making enough milk to breastfeed. We worked on, like, other ways to bond with him and other ways to be close to him and stuff, and that's really what pulled me through with it. Single parenting can be isolating. Sanchez isn't close to her family. And it helps that Carino's not just a nurse, but a mother herself. She has a 12-year-old and a 9-month-old. Carino does two to three home visits a day, crisscrossing the San Luis Valley. It means hours of driving. Often her last stop is to pick up her oldest, Jaden. Hi, babe. How was school? 
Jaden's a reminder of where Stephanie Carino was more than 12 years ago and how far she's come. At the time, Carino was 16 and, like many of her clients, young and pregnant. She says she connected with a visiting nurse who helped her get through the ups and downs. Now it's Carino's turn. I'm Andrea Dukakis, CPR News. Well, a Denver man is widely credited with this approach. Forty years ago now, David Olds had a hunch that if nurses visited first-time mothers and pregnant women, it could help children and families, possibly for generations. Olds is a professor of pediatrics, nursing, and public health at the CU School of Medicine. And David, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. Certainly, home visits are a very old tradition in medicine. And there are visiting nurses programs elsewhere. Uh, But how did this particular approach, nurses visiting low-income families, new moms especially, how did it come to you? Well, in my own case, I uh, grew out of my experience working in inner-city Baltimore. I uh, finished up undergraduate school in 1970, and I went to work uh, in an inner-city daycare center. And really, I was a product of the 60s. I thought that if I could just help poor preschoolers get off to a really good start, that they'd have a better chance of succeeding in elementary school and later on in society. But it soon became clear that for a lot of the children in my classroom, it was already too little and too late. One little boy, for example, um, couldn't talk. He could only gesture. And it turns out that he had been exposed to alcohol and drugs during pregnancy, which compromised his ability to function. Uh, Another little boy couldn't sleep at nap time, and uh, we couldn't figure out why he couldn't sleep. Uh, And then we realized – he revealed that when he slept, he wet himself, and if he wet himself, his mom beat him. Witnessed another little boy being pushed through the front door of our daycare center and slapped across the face and screamed at by his mother. And so I I realized that for – it was already too late and too little for many of the children in my classroom. Even at the daycare stage. And so I suppose you thought too earlier in a child's development, as early as – uh, their mother's pregnancy. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, it was this experience with this one little boy in my classroom that made me appreciate um, just how important fetal development is. And um, But I also realized, Ryan, that I, I didn't know enough. So I uh, – and by the way, it's, it's easy to simply attribute all of this to parental behavior. But boy, you walk out of the door of our daycare center – and, um, you know, the, the conditions in the neighborhoods in inner city Baltimore were terrible. Housing stock was terrible. Rates of crime were high. Uh, unemployment rates were high. Our job opportunities were very limited. So parents had to contend with all that adversity and care for their children. So all of that ended up shaping my thinking about what would be needed to really prevent the kinds of problems that I was seeing in four-year-olds. I'll say that you came to Colorado in the early 1990s to start a program and study its effectiveness. But your first experiment, really, was back in Elmira, New York, uh, 40 years ago in 1977. What was the the approach and, and the hypothesis behind it? The basic hypothesis was that if you could help women improve their health behaviors during pregnancy and you could help parents provide 
more competent care of the baby early in life. And you could inspire parents to make wise decisions for themselves about completing their educations and finding work, that you would change the conditions for early fetal and infant development and parental life course. What kinds of behaviors did you either want to correct or, you know, what new behaviors did you want to develop? We wanted to help parents uh, understand what the effects of let's say, prenatal tobacco use or alcohol use would have on the developing fetus. And um, we wanted to help parents learn how to read and respond to baby's cues more sensitively and more more effectively. And the good news is the program focuses on women having their first pregnancies or first live births. So this is a major change in individuals' development where they're going through massive changes in the roles and neurobiology. Their brains are changing. So we as human beings are instinctively driven to protect our children. And that's not just limited to human beings. It's you know, among all primates, there's this instinctual drive to protect our children. And in some ways, we're leveraging that drive. And, and I suppose then the idea enters your mind to have nurses be the point people. But my, it sounds like you are asking them to do a lot. Yeah, no kidding. Um, we, we ask nurses to do this work because often – uh, you know, pregnant women who are living in adverse conditions are are skeptical of other people who might provide this service. Like who? But, well, um, uh, you know, I think parents are naturally concerned. You heard this um, in the story just uh, that we that preceded our conversation that that young mother's friends were skeptical about asking someone who might come in who might be with child welfare or someone who's going to take their baby away. Nurses have a legitimate agenda to address that I think is really crucial. That is the health of mothers. Whether you know what does this back pain mean? What is labor and delivery going to be like? What's caring for a, a, a vulnerable newborn going to be like? And that agenda is something that all all pregnant women, parents of young children, are concerned about. Right. There's something very universal about this. Yeah. I can imagine uh, parents out there listening to this who aren't necessarily low income or, frankly, who have had any number of children thinking, I could use this, I could have used this. Yeah, no kidding. The nurses in, who delivered the program in our original experiment would say, you know, I could have used this as well. And I think that Honestly, these are the kind of support that that parents are getting does have broad-based appeal. But honestly, the benefits of the program are most pronounced where where mothers are struggling and where they're having to contend with adversity. I'm going to ask you about those benefits, what proof you have this works in just a moment. But you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And 40 years ago, the seed was planted for what became the Nurse Family Partnership. It is a nonprofit based in Denver that really has a presence nationally. And uh, its founder, uh, who did this work in upstate New York some 40 years ago, is David Olds. He's now at the CU School of Medicine. And um, indeed, David, what can, you, what can you show for these 40 years of work? And what evidence do you have that this makes a difference? It certainly sounds nice. Is there data to back it up? You know, 
Ryan, we we took the position early on that we needed to invest in really rigorous research to figure out whether this program could make a difference. So we conducted a first scientifically controlled study in upstate New York in Chemung County or Elmira, New York, and um, and found beneficial effects. Um, and many people, when they heard the results of the program, said, gee, you've got a program that works. You need to make it more widely available. We took the position that we ought not to do that. We needed to know whether it would work with minorities living in major urban areas. And Because um, you had started in a more rural area, an that's isolated right. part of New York. A semi-rural community with well, recruiting a sample that was primarily white we needed to know whether it would work with African Americans in particular living in major urban areas. So we repeated this experiment three times with different populations living in different contexts um, and uh, you know, different points in our country's history. And it was only after investing in research for 20 years that we even offered up the program for public investment. There was an experiment, I understand, in Denver early on. Uh, so... What were the results? What are the results today? Well, we we see consistent effects in helping women improve their prenatal health, especially cutting down on the use of tobacco, reductions in hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, significant replicated effects on children's injuries revealed in the medical record, including hospitalizations for serious injury. We see significant, and this is in one trial so far, but we now see significant reductions in preventable mortality among children. Um, what, do, what do those deaths tend to be? Uh, what, what are the causes of death? Yeah. Yeah. Sudden infant death syndrome, injury, homicide by the time the children are adolescents. Um, and we also see significant reductions in maternal mortality over, that, over, the, or a, over a 20-year period following birth of that first child. So that tells you that there are lasting effects, enduring effects. I suppose long after the nurse has left that family, it sounded uh, like those two in the San Luis Valley were really quite close, that new mom and the nurse that visited her. At what point does that relationship end? Isn't that a tricky question to say, when should the support sunset? Yeah, thanks for that question, Ryan. You are so right about that. It's um, uh, in so many ways, nurses are both establishing a relationship that that they hope will carry with this young mother for her entire life. And in many cases, it does. And at the same time, nurses are, from the beginning, building a sense of independence on the part of the mothers so that they're not uh, really dependent on the nurse. So it's it's tricky being developing that relationship and simultaneously building this mother's abilities to manage challenges in her life on her own. Typically, this ends around age two, as I understand. That's right. That's right. There are obvious questions about the future of this program uh, with changes potentially coming to Medicaid. Uh, I know that in Colorado, the Nurse Family Partnership is supported uh, by means other than Medicaid, tobacco settlement money, for instance. But in some of the 40-some-odd states that you are in, Medicaid dollars are a part of this. That's right. And what I can say is that Medicaid funds portions of the total program cost. And it really varies tremendously by by state because Medicaid itself varies by the way it's organized, varies by state. And so if states are given more flexibility under something like a block grant program, 
Um, I suppose you can't say yet what the future would be of the nurse family partnership. That would be in the hands of those states deciding how to spend their block grant money. That's right, Ryan. But what I can say is this. One of the things that uh, has been really uh, reassuring to me over the 20-year period now that we've been replicating the program outside of research contexts is that the program has enjoyed bipartisan support. We see that um, legislators across the political spectrum get it. They get the importance of this as a, a as a critical point in human development and an opportunity to do good. And one of the reasons we have such broad bipartisan support is that there is such a strong evidentiary foundation for this work that um, I think it be – I mean people have said to us that this becomes a model for evidence-based policymaking. Are there families for whom this doesn't work? Who has failed in it? Yes. I'm so glad you asked that question. It's most beneficial for those at greatest risk. But the, uh, uh, failure is too strong a word. The program experiences challenges when there is intimate partner violence. And we are conducting research to figure out how to address the um, uh, intimate partner violence in a more effective and, and systematic way. There's a lot of attention given to this as an issue for families. Uh, that we, is a lot of the potential yeah. benefits are erased if there's abuse going on in the home of this spouse. I wouldn't say all of them, but some of the benefits um, in terms of reducing child abuse and neglect are attenuated. And so the um, – you know, we, we're working – on uh, addressing that very issue. Do you have any update on those children that you met back in the day in Baltimore? I wish I did. I've mm. thought about them many times. Um, I've wondered, you know, they're, they're, um, they're uh, not just young. They're, they're, they're adults yes, now. That's <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're uh, 40, 45, 46-year-olds now, you know, so... Um, what I can say is that uh, for the for the mothers and children enrolled in the program, that many of them have gone on to um, achieve really productive lives. I mean, I love the story that you just you aired as part of the beginning of this. Segment. So the participant who became the nurse in the program. Exactly. The there is something about this experience that uh, supports and elicits. Uh, women's desire to help not only their own children, but other people in the community. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much for the opportunity. David Olds, Professor of Pediatrics, Nursing, and Public Health at the CU School of Medicine. We talked about the Nurse Family Partnership based in Denver, which he was instrumental in starting 40 years ago now. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hundreds of thousands of veterans have been pushed out of the military with other than honorable discharges. That status can be a barrier to receiving care from the Department of Veterans Affairs. David Shulkin, the VA's newly appointed secretary, says he wants to help these vets when they're in crisis. We are going to go and we are going to start providing uh, mental health care for those that are other than, other than honorably discharged right. for urgent mental health. 
That is Shulkin testifying before Congress earlier this month. Reporter Michael DeYoana has investigated the treatment of veterans for more than a decade, and he joins us with an update on this. Hi, Michael. Hey, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. There's a push in Congress to see that these soldiers get care, including separate efforts involving Senator Michael Bennett, Representative Mike Kaufman of Colorado. Uh, Before we get into this, though, take us back to your earlier reporting. You and NPR's Danny Zwerdling worked together and discovered that tens of thousands of troopers were being pushed out of the army, right? Uh, That's right, Ryan. You know, we told the stories of soldiers who fought in Iraq and Afghanistan that came home from um, the wars to Fort Carson and Colorado Springs. Uh, They got into trouble, though, with their commanders after they did things like showing up late for formation or getting caught driving drunk or talking back to an officer. So um, we found that there might be a reason for this. The soldiers in our investigation also had brain injuries, um, mental health disorders, or or maybe even both. And the experts we talked to said that misbehavior can be symptom symptomatic of those conditions. Huh. Um, so um, they end up with what's called bad paper. Bad paper, what does that mean? Well, you've heard of an honorable discharge. Um, think of that as the gold standard of discharges. And you've probably heard of a dishonorable discharge. Yeah. Well, uh, well, um, that's not so golden. Uh, bad paper is in between them. Uh, the technical term is an un- other than honorable discharge. And if you get into trouble with your commanders, you might just get that. That's an administrative process. And then you are out. The bad paper follows you around after the military. So besides it being difficult to get into the VA, unless you go through this lengthy process where you have to convince the VA to give you care after all, you might just find life a little difficult, like, for instance, finding a job or getting into the VA for care. Yeah. And again, these are people who need that care because they may have mental health issues, traumatic brain injury. What is the new VA secretary propose in this regard? Okay, well, there's nothing that's been said about fixing this bad paper, but Secretary Shulkin is, quote, focused on expanding access to assist vets with bad paper who are in mental health distress. Uh, During testimony to the House House Veteran Affairs Committee on March 7th, he cited the VA's estimate that 20 veterans a day take their own lives. Many of those vets, he said, are not in the VA system. So many veterans that we see are just disconnected from our system. That's the frustration of the 20 a day, as you know, 14 are not getting care in the VA. And yet we have this great comprehensive mental health system. So this is a question in some regards of life and death. And this is specifically about mental health, Michael? Right. Not all kinds of care. Okay. Uh, Well, what's the VA going to do? Well, uh, that's a great question, and that is just what Michael Bennett wants to know. He's one of Colorado's U.S. senators, and he applauds Shulkin for focusing on these veterans as, quote, a step in the right direction. But uh, Bennett spokeswoman Shannon Beckham says the senator needs clarification. It's crucial that we learn what specifically the secretary intends to change. For instance, will these services include preventative care or just be available for veterans in an urgent crisis? 
And another question is, what's really going to be different? Uh, For instance, Bennett said uh, bad paper vets should already be able to access VA emergency rooms if they are in crisis. Um, So uh, he's joined with seven other senators in a letter to Shulkin on March 10th asking for more detail. Did they get any word back? Uh, No, but Shulkin has said he wants to finalize some kind of plan to help these veterans by early summer. Uh, Meanwhile, Bennett and a group of his fellow senators have introduced legislation uh, this week that might settle some of these issues, at, at least for Bennett. It's called the Honor Our Commitment Act. And uh, it would expand access for these vets and clarify the process and eligibility. Any idea how that bill would fare? Um, I, no, it's way too early to, to say that. Um, and it's not the only bill that's out there. Uh, right. Representative Mike Kaufman of Colorado has submitted legislation. Uh, Kaufman's a Marine. Uh, he has served in combat. He's also on the Veterans Committee. And Secretary Shulkin said he wants to work with Kaufman on this issue. I recently spoke with Kaufman. I can't tell you how deeply disturbing I feel it is uh, in meeting with these veterans, uh, given some of the circumstances that they've been discharged under, uh, and then the fact that they've been denied um, uh, health care, particularly mental health care, is, is an incredible insult, I think. Uh, Kaufman's bill is on what he calls an expedited track. It will get an initial hearing next week. In its current form, it gives vets with bad paper access to a mental health assessment from the VA and, if needed, treatment for, quote, urgent mental health care needs. Again, bad paper meaning these other than honorable discharges. So, Michael DeOanna, would Representative Kaufman's bill address all of these soldiers' needs who have been discharged this way? Well, Ryan, here's a number for you. There are about a half million veterans out there with other than honorable discharges. Um, That's according to Shulkin. But Kaufman's bill addresses just a slice of them. Only the ones who would who uh, have served in combat or have suffered other trauma like a sexual assault. When I asked Kaufman how many would be helped, he conceded it would be fewer than half a million. Hmm. I'm curious what veterans groups say about all this. Well, one large group, the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, applauded the VA secretary, calling the initiative uh, to help these bad paper vets long overdue. But other organizations like the Uniformed Services Justice and Advocacy Group in Denver have lots of questions about how exactly care would be expanded. Georg Andreas Pagani, the CEO of the group, is among those asking questions. Um, he has he has advocated the cases of numerous troubled veterans for more than a decade, and uh, he said many were pushed out with other than honorable discharges, although they suffered injuries in the war. Um, my colleague Daniel's Wordling at NPR and I have reported on that issue, and Pagani sees that as being at the root of the VA's access issues. Congress has to definitively address the practice of wrongful and inappropriate discharges. He also said that veterans need more than just urgent care for mental health issues. Some have post-traumatic stress or brain injuries from the war and need full comprehensive care. You'll have updates for us as they're available. Michael, thank you. Thanks. Michael DeOanna, he's been investigating how the VA treats soldiers for more than a decade. He used to work here at CPR News. He's now news director at KUNC Greeley. This is Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio. 
Otis Taylor sings about race and racism. The songs on his new album, Fantasizing About Being Black, are haunting vignettes about the African-American experience. The shackles on my leg Cramping in my head This is the Boulder Blues Musicians' 15th album. And Otis, welcome back to Colorado Matters. Thank you so much. The song we're hearing is called Banjo Bam Bam. And in the liner notes, you write, an African-American slave in shackles is slowly losing his mind. The song doesn't go into much more detail, but in a way, I think that's what makes it so haunting. Um, we're, we're fewer words better in this. It's just my style. You know that. You've interviewed me like, what, a hundred times or something? About a hundred, yes. Yeah, a hundred, you know, and uh, it's just, uh, I think it's self-expansion. On the slave ship, the Middle Passage, you know, they, they, they would commit suicide and jump off the ship if they could get loose, you know? If they died or sick, they threw them off the ship, so... You could imagine being shackled in on those slave ships. You probably lose your mind. You, know? you, you do indeed write uh, often very stripped down, bare songs. There's a lot of repetition to, I think, to make a point, to echo the meaning of a song. The, the songs almost are cinematic on this new album. Do you, do you have a very vivid picture in your head when you're writing them? No. No, I'm not deep. You know that. No, I I'm think just, that. Yeah, I think you say you're not deep, but I think you are. I'm not, no, it's just. I think all my albums are kind of cinematic. That's why I was able to get in Hollywood movies. It, but I, just because I leave room, and the music's a pad for the thought. You know, the music's a pad, and then the words are the, like in cinema. You know, and then the words are the, the film in a way. So, I leave a lot of room for the words. In some press notes, you're quoted as saying, after 15 albums, I've taken all my thoughts about the history of racial injustice and created a musical interpretation for modern times. When I started recording in 2015, you go on, I had no idea the topics would become even more relevant. How do the songs on this album connect with contemporary events? Well, I always do. It just, uh, it's never stopped. It's uh, like imprisonment, like in prisons is a form of slavery, you know, like putting people in prison. They work for free. I think it got worse after Obama got in. I, I got a sense it was like I could feel it more. It was like I, it's like maybe I was asleep for most of my life since the, since the 70s and 80s and 90s. I mean, in the 60s, you had to feel it, you know, in the 50s. But maybe I was asleep or something because it, when Obama got in, I could really feel the difference. You talked about having to be aware of racism in the 60s because it was it was so in your face and the yeah. civil rights well, struggle in the 50s was too I was born in yeah I was raised in the 50s you know can can we listen to another song called jump out of line mm-hmm. and um the liner notes on this uh, say civil rights marchers were always fearful of being attacked jump out of line jump out of line jump out of line oh jump out of line got a sign for freedom so much with me Got a sign for freedom So much with me Jump out of line Ooh, jump out of line Jump out of line Ooh, jump out of line Jump out of line Ooh, jump out of line Jump out of line Ooh, 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 jump out of line 
jump out of line. Tell me more about what's going on in this song, Jump Out of Line. Well, Jump Out of Line, I just think about people mar- marching across the bridge and the guys with the billy clubs. If you jump, you're going to get hit, you know? Jump out of line. But you want to jump out of line, but you want to stay focused in the march, you know? You know? And walk for, and saying, walk with me, walk for freedom, you know? Were you very involved at that time? No. <laughs> Why? I just, I wasn't very political when I was young. So that's changed for you as you've gotten older. No, it hasn't really. It's complicated because when I was a little kid, my grandmother was Republican because Lincoln freed the slaves. This is like in the 50s. So my whole perspective about Republicans and Democrats, I had a strange kind of thing about it, you know? So I never got involved. And when the Obama thing happened, I got, I, I started watching politics more. Talk about the title of this album, Otis Taylor, fantasizing about being black. Yeah, well, we we all can sort of fantasize about being black. I mean, I came from sort of an unusual family, but my father was very, uh, he was a chauffeur and a valet, so he was dressed very preppy, very Brooks Brothers-ish, and I wasn't allowed to wear sort of classic sort of soul clothes, you might say, or the pimp clothes. You know, I, I could not ever wear that stuff. But, you know, you watch the movie Superfly, and I want to, you know, come back, yeah, I'm going to be like Super. Mm, I don't think so. <laughs> There's some blacks that wear uh, African clothes, Daisikis, and then the whites totally just fantasize about being black. You know what I mean? But within all cultures, there's certain levels of... Of that fantasy. Different. There was fantasy yeah. even Elvis, for yourself. Yeah, for Elvis yourself. or Vanilla Ice or, you know. Huh. So, you see them, so everybody fantasizes about being black. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Boulder bluesman Otis Taylor. His new album, uh, the title of which we've just been discussing, is Fantasizing About Being Black. There is a great story behind the song Jump Jelly Belly. Jump Jelly Belly Jump Jump Jelly Belly Jump Jump Jelly Belly Jump What's the story here? Well, we're at some friends in Santa Fe. Their grandfather lived there, and uh, and I walked in the house, and uh, he had a picture of Buffalo soldiers on the side wall. Uh, you know, I call them, they're not Buffalo soldiers, then they're black soldiers. And so I found that he was a general. He retired as a general, but he was a captain. And he had the black soldiers in World War II. And when they, uh, on the open sea, the ships would, like in outside of England, you know, they would load on the open sea. But it's really dangerous because if you fall down and when you jump in from boat to boat, ship to ship, you could jump down and you die. Okay. So they had this one, he told me this story, this one person named Jelly Belly, and he was kind of chubby and didn't want to jump. And he said, you don't jump, nobody gets fed. So it's a true story. Jump Jelly Belly was sort of what they yelled at him. Yeah. To go from one boat to the other? Yeah. That sounds terrifying. Well, if he fell, you're dead. I want to 
point out that uh, Denver jazz musician Ron Miles plays cornet on that song and several others. He's played on a number of your albums. What does he add to your sound? It's a genius. <laughs> it's like uh, one of the best deals in the country, you know? I have to say, I love what he added in particular to 12-string mile. Mm-hmm. The cornet is just gorgeous there. But that's Ron. I mean, he's a genius. What It's like, if you find gold on the ground, will you pick it up? <laughs> you, know? you, you describe 12-string mile as in the 1930s, a black man could never dare look a white man straight in the eye. One more mile. One more mile to go. One more mile. One more mile to go. Nobody sees me. Nobody sees me. The theme of that song, and, and again, you can hear. Uh, Ron Miles on cornet. The theme of that song is invisibility yes. to me. It made me think of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Have you felt invisible as a black man? No, because I was in the 30s. I never felt like Raising Denver was pretty easy about the racial thing compared to, you know, I left Chicago when I was four, but Denver was pretty mellow compared to other cities like Chicago, New York, or Oakland or down south. We're pretty lucky to a certain degree. So I never felt invisible. I just sort of felt like a second class, you know, sort of always fighting not to be second class. Do you remember when you most felt second class? In the 60s, I was a caddy and Judge Abernathy was trying to get into the Cherry Hills uh, tournament. You were a golf caddy. Yeah. And they wouldn't let him in. It was on the news the next day. It was a big deal. I was going to just be caddy. I kind of bummed because I would have made about $6, you know. <laughs> and this was an African-American judge. Oh, Judge Abernathy. He was yeah. a famous judge back in the 60s. And they wouldn't let him on the course. No. Um, I want to ask you about the blues, but I want to do it through the inimitable Maya Angelou. So um, she has passed away, obviously, and mm-hmm. um, American Masters did a documentary about her. And she was interviewing B.B. King. And she had this question for him. The question is, what is the blues? Now wait, Mr. Cannon. <laughs> and after that laughter, here is how he answered. We've heard that ladies will cry when something happened to them. A man won't cry on the outside, but he usually cry inwardly. It might be one of those funny type of things that you, I feel that you may laugh at me about it. So I'll get out to myself and I'll sing about it. And eventually it becomes a song. Is that true for you? Do you sing the blues because otherwise you'd cry? No. I just sing the blues because it's part of my culture. How so? It has nothing to do with crying. It just has to do with something that we, we learn when we're children, a type of a music, you know? Mm. A happy blues, sad blues. Uh, uh, no, I just do it because I do it. I used to tell people, um, I don't know much about the blues, but I'm good at being black. I <laughs> know. I'm not sure I know what that means. Well, what can I say? I think it's self-explanatory as a black man. I, mm-hmm. you know, I'm you, not a historian. I'm not a philosopher. I'm just a person. I think people who listen to your albums probably would disagree with the philosopher thing. But um, do you cry much? 
Did you uh, cry? Did you cry making this album? Because it's no. there's a lot of sadness in it. No, no. Why would I? I cry when I ain't got no money. <laughs> <laughs> You've been in those places before. What? You've been in that position before. What? Not having any money. I was mm-hmm. born pretty poor. You know, born in the south side of Chicago. Things were tight. It's days when we didn't have food. Classic story. I, my father used to tell me how he didn't have shoes till he was eight. This is your fifteenth album, as I mentioned. Do they get any easier to make? Get harder, way harder, way harder. Because you have to be different, but yet the same. I mean, you, did you hear Hey Joe Opus? Uh, yes, I did. Well, this is way different than Hey Joe Opus. Yeah, so so pre- previous album. Yeah, it's, it's hard to be the same, but yet different. It's, re- and it's like a combination. You only get so many combinations, and then you run out of combinations. Hmm. And yet, you, you do find lots of new topics to kind of meditate on. There's no shortage of things to write music about, but I suppose it's that the sound, it's hard to achieve the sound each time. Well, it gets harder. It gets uh-huh. harder. I mean, if you went through all my records, you'd see a consistency, but every one would be a little bit different. And that's hard. That's not an easy thing. Yeah. I mean, maybe I make it look easy to people, but it's very, it's the most difficult thing I have to do. You're a grandfather now? Yes. Any, any plans to slow down a bit? I want to slow down, but I got to eat. Uh, there we go. Go back to that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> property, Ser- property taxes are expensive in Boulder. That's all I can say. You know, <laughs> seriously though, to to what extent do you continue to make music uh, because of passion, and to what extent do you continue to make music because of economic necessity? Oh, that's a good question. That's too deep for me. Man. That's I, not deep. What's that's, give me give me a rough percentage? I have here. no response to that question. I, I don't know. I, it's too early in the morning to make me think that that heavy. I don't, what what money? No, I mean, um, see, there's the music business. Yeah. Then there's music. The music business is a whole different animal. Just sitting in your front room playing your guitar or piano or a banjo, than dealing with the music business. Uh, I get a, a, the sense you're less inclined to deal with the business aspect than the music. You have one has no choice if you yeah. want to live off of it. I'm trying to live off of it. What song should we go out with, Otis Taylor? Hands on Your Stomach. What's it about? It's about a slave woman that has sort of a dream. A spirit comes to her and says, you can be free. They can control your body, but they can't control your mind. Otis, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me back again. It's great to see you. Put your hands on your stomach. Let the spirit come through. Put your hands on your stomach. Let the spirit come through. Boulder bluesman Otis Taylor, his new album is fantasizing about being black. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The conversation doesn't stop after our show airs. It continues in our regular feedback segment, Loud and Clear. And you had plenty to say after my interview with Holocaust survivor Fanny Starr, who endured a long string of concentration camps, including Auschwitz. 
We spoke at her dining room table in Denver earlier this month. From the train, we went to that big warehouse and they stripped and they gave you the striped dress. No underwear, nothing, just this dress. So it this is at your arrival at Auschwitz yeah. and you're handed those somewhat infamous uniforms, those striped uniforms. We didn't know. We didn't care. Who cared? We were just lost our will to live. Joni Jackson Malavesi of Westminster was among the listeners who were moved. On Facebook, she posted that she heard the interview after dropping her kids off at school. Quote, I had to pull over and compose myself because the tears just kept coming. Thank you, Fanny, for not keeping your story to yourself, even if seemingly impossible to tell. You have surely touched many lives through your testimony. Melissa Dubinsky of Denver was also moved to tears, she says. At CPRnews.org, she wrote, I am thankful Fanny lived through that awful experience. What she and her husband do to spread the truth about the Holocaust is a wonderful thing. And Phil Crossley of Gunnison emailed that he liked how much Starr's personality came through, as well as her love for her children and late husband. Recently, we gathered together some of the most powerful people in higher education in Colorado to talk about college costs and dwindling state support. Bob Card of Littleton said the discussion, quote, really clarified what's happening in higher education today. It gave me renewed confidence that we have some good things going on in Colorado in spite of funding demands that have shifted the burden for these institutions. But Mark Toll of Elizabeth heard it differently. He thought I was, quote, waltzed around the room by a group of well-seasoned taxi dancers. I had to look that up. Taxi dancers are paid dance partners. Toll is turned off by the tactics that schools resort to to maintain their bottom lines. Instead of promoting education or considering education, first hear these administrators talking about competing for a limited demographic And we have to do things to make sure we get the full pay or full tuition students. I I found the whole thing uh, absurd on its face, and I wish that he had confronted them on their rationale. A.J. Morocco of Denver left this comment on Facebook. CSU has been crying about funding for a decade, yet they have the money to build that absurd oversized stadium. CU is practically taking over downtown Denver. They have the money for all that real estate near Larimer Square, plus their multi-million dollar marketing campaigns with RTD. But then they cry about funding and enrollment. Police! As a point of reference, Colorado State's new $220 million on-campus stadium is slated to open in August. School officials say none of the facility's costs were paid by tuition or state funding. Also, CU President Bruce Benson, who was on our panel, said his system is paying $5 million for five years of naming rights to the RTD train to the plane. Benson said CU considers the money a good marketing investment. Careful breathing and exposure to the cold could give you more control over your immune system. We heard that earlier this week from Denver author Scott Carney. He investigated the claims of a Dutch guru and tried the methods himself. So I met this guy named Wim Hof, and he said that he could teach you to control your immune system at will, control your body temperature at will, and I thought that was crazy. 
And I flew out to see him in the cold winter of Poland, and he had me stand out in the snow. And within a week, I was sweating when I was standing out in the snow. And that made me go from a denier, or someone who didn't believe this was possible, to someone who was like, well, I guess I have to believe because this is happening. Well, listener Robert Chase from somewhere in the United Kingdom wrote in about a similar transformation. Chase says years ago, he drove from Southern California to Denver, but the heat gave out in the car. As he and a friend crossed the Continental Divide, the temperature plummeted. The windshield froze, and they had to turn on the air, which pointed right at Chase. They drove for hours through the ice and snow, Chase says, and so he started to meditate and imagined his body heating up. It worked, and since then, he writes, I have not felt the cold so much. Later, he discovered Wim Hof, the Dutch guru at the center of our story, who says he can control his body's response to the cold. Chase writes, I was amazed to see it had not just been my imagination. Our story apparently riveted listener James Rudolph of Denver, who tweeted during the show, I had to pee for what seems like an hour, but I can't leave my desk because it's so fascinating. Well, we appreciate your dedication, but remember, you can take Colorado Matters with you anywhere with the CPR app, through our podcast on iTunes, and at CPRnews.org. And that's the program for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News.